instead of uh, someone else who's many shorter. Uh, would you please rise as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 19 through 22, and I'm reading from the Coleman Christian Bible. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. But the prophet who dares to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. You may be seated. Thank you, Mary Lynn, uh, for reading scripture this morning. And if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to start. Uh, we're going to go to two places today. Uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11 here momentarily. But I also want you to begin over in Isaiah chapter number 44. Isaiah chapter number 44 uh, is where we're going to start. And then we'll head on over to Daniel chapter 11 uh, in just a few moments. Isaiah 44. And then you can put a bookmark over in Daniel uh, chapter 11. So this morning we're uh, continuing our walk through the book of Daniel. And uh, uh, we're in chapter 11. Uh, there's 12 chapters in this book. So next week we'll finish it up uh, and bring it in, bring the plane into land, if you will. Uh, but today we're in chapter 11. Let me read to you a quote uh, that I found. Uh, this was a, a commentator uh, named Herbert Leupold. Uh, he, he said this, we do not see how Daniel 11 could be used for a sermon. Let's pray and we're out. Uh, that's encouraging, right? <laughs> how do you make Daniel chapter 11 a sermon? And if you sat down and you read for all 45 verses of Daniel chapter 11, you probably agree with him. Uh, did anybody read it this week? Anybody go ahead and get ahead? All of you overachievers? Yeah, no, I probably not. I read it. Uh, I've read it several times over the last several weeks and there's 45 verses about this story this battle of northern and southern kings and and uh, these are probably not the ones that you would consider your favorite chapters in the bible however we believe all scripture is god breathed all scripture uh, is here for us to teach us something either something about our life or something about god and so I have entitled the message today, God's Reign Over World History. Because as we're going to see this morning, this chapter is full of prophecy after prophecy. And in looking back on those words, we can see the hand of God over every little detail. So this morning, our scripture reading came from Deuteronomy. Uh, some verses that maybe you've heard before, uh, that God was using Moses to tell the children of Israel, hey, be careful about people who are prophesying to you. One way to know if they're the, a true prophet is if what they say comes true. And if, they, if it comes true, then they're a true prophet. If it doesn't, you don't need to be afraid of them. But what does that have to do with Daniel? Well, Daniel, we know, is a prophetic book. Uh, his words were written around... 530 BC. Uh, it speaks a great deal about the, the culture of the day. 
And in our study of the book, as we bring it to a close, we're concluding with another one of the prophecies seen by Daniel in a, in a vision. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are uh, this one vision, this kind of story together, that, that really troubles Daniel. And so I want to take a little different approach to this chapter by giving you a story, telling you some truths about God, and then finally giving us some responses, or what is our response to it as readers. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word of truth. Lord, every single word is, is uh, inspired by you, is inerrant. Uh, Lord, it will never fail. It will, it will continue to remain true to the end of time. And God, as we look back on these words, I pray that you would encourage us. Encourage those who are suffering today. Uh, as people in those days lived in a world that was hostile towards God, I pray that, uh, that just as they could live with hope, that we could live with hope today. Uh, I pray that you will open our hearts, Lord, now to receive your word. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen. Now, before we begin Daniel 11, there's a, there's a couple of things that I want us to know, because sometimes people get confused by prophecies, and we wonder, how in the world does this apply to me? I mean, this was, this was old. This is old stuff, and in its history, it's already happened. And I, I read my Bible, and I don't, I don't see America in the Bible anywhere. I, I see no mention of the year 2020 coming up, right? Uh, I don't see any mention of President Trump, right? Well, what about the verse that says that the last trump... Did, no, 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 no. Which is why this morning I'm actually beginning over in Isaiah 44. Uh, and you're there. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. Isaiah 44, verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim. This is God speaking. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come... And what will happen? Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? There are two things here in Isaiah 44 that I think will help us when we get over to Daniel chapter 11. And the first thing is in verse 7 that God uses prophecy to declare himself as God. That here in Isaiah... Essentially, we have people who have rebelled against God and have run off to these other gods. In Isaiah 44, God is calling out those other gods. He's like, are those gods there? Let them come forward. Let them tell what is going to happen. And then actually let it happen. And he's not saying, hey, listen, we're, we're, he goes, I, I, I know the future. I know exactly how everything is going to lay out. And it's not this like vague fortune cookie, you know, uh, you're going to, tomorrow you're going to, you're going to experience a work setting. Okay, good. Yeah, that's everybody, right? Uh, no, this is like every little detail. The fact that God can accurately tell the future and predict it to the smallest detail is an act of God showing us and declaring to us he is God. God uses prophecy to declare himself. But secondly, in verse 8, he says, fear not, nor be afraid. That, that prophecy is meant to be a comfort to God's suffering people. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? Why? Because I, God, have told you from of old that it would happen. He says, don't be afraid. The people were worried about something. The people are afraid. So prophecy is so that people who are suffering will be comforted that there is hope. And then this morning, either you're facing a trial during this time, you're going through suffering, or maybe you've just come out of suffering, 
Or one day you're going to enter into a time of suffering because it's part of the human existence. It's who we are. Suffering's going to happen to each and every single one of us. And as we've seen in the book of Daniel, those three Hebrew men who stood up before Nebuchadnezzar, they had already made up their mind before they actually went through it. They determined, hey, God is greater, and now there's nothing that Nebuchadnezzar is going to do that's going to deter me from serving God and God alone. And so this morning, if you are suffering, you don't need to learn about theology and these deep things. You simply need to grab a hold of God, cling to the cross. But if you're not suffering, I encourage you to dig deeper and to make a commitment that no matter what comes ahead, you're going to hold fast to what you know and what you believe. Now, let's go over to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. And take a look at what, what is happening here. I mentioned a few moments ago, Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is one event. It's one big final event within this book. Uh, this book has been divided, as we said, into two parts. Daniel 1 through 6 is a chronological, historical events. We have the famous stories of Daniel in the lion's den, the men in the fiery furnace. We have the, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and the statue and all of those things. In chapter 7 through 12, we have the prophecy part of the book, the visions and experiences that Daniel faced during the events of 1 through 6, which all of them here in 7 through 12 are more prophetic in nature. Now, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor, uh, and I grew up hearing all the stories and sermons, and I've heard many sermons between Daniels 1 through 6, and I've even heard a few but I can't remember one sermon from Daniel chapter 11. As I'm reading it, I'm going, what? What? Like, I, I'm, I'm reading it again. I'm like, okay, there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this. And I've read it probably 10 times now, and there's sometimes I still get lost in the details of what chapter 11 is all about. So to kind of give us an idea, I want to do something different this morning. I want to I tell you a story. A story of history. And what we're going to notice is that this parallels Daniel chapter 11. And what we're going to do is after I tell the story, we're going to get into some specifics of the verses. Okay? So uh, just sit back, relax, you know, and let's just listen to the story. Okay? Daniel is living around the time of a guy, a king named Cyrus. We've heard of him before. Okay, as time goes on, Cyrus is a very real person. Very, you can look him up in history books. Cyrus was a king of Persia. And as time goes on, Cyrus will pass from the scene. And his, his next ruler will come up and take over. And then the next one will take over. And then the next one. And the fourth one down is a guy by the name of Xerxes. Xerxes, uh, he's uh, the one that we see over in Ezra or in Nehemiah or in Esther where you hear these Azuraris. Some have said that's Xerxes, okay? Xerxes is a very real king, okay? So he rules at a time, and at that time, Persia was really powerful. I mean, we're talking this empire was, it was even more so than Cyrus. It was, he was just this, this massive entity, this empire. Well, Xerxes wasn't really happy with just living in his kingdom. In those days, they had this desire to conquer and, and make themselves even greater. So there was this group of countries to the north and west that Xerxes had his eyes on that he really wanted to conquer. This area that he was looking at was an area called Greece. Now, Xerxes gathers an army, 
And some historians suggest that it was upwards to a million soldiers. This massive army. And he starts marching towards Greece. Now, in order to move this massive army, you've got to have a supplies, a lot of supplies. And so Xerxes also sends, as they march westward, Xerxes also sends uh, in the Mediterranean Sea a massive navy that is filled with supply ships. We're talking ships that are carrying food and weapons and armor, all of this stuff, okay? And the army starts to march towards Greece, specifically Athens, specifically the capital. We're going to go fight this Greece, these Grecian people. Now, in response to this, Greece finds out about it. And so what they do is they send some of their best warriors to fight against them. Uh, there's 300 of them. Does this sound familiar to you? <laughs> 300? Uh, 300 of them, and on this tiny little strip of land called Thermopylae, these 300 Spartan warriors took their stand against this million-man army. And these 300 warriors stand. They've got some smaller allies there on the sides, and the fighting happens for seven days. Now, if you haven't seen the movie 300, I'm sorry I'm getting ready to spoil it for you. Uh, eventually, the Persians win. They kill off all the Spartans, and the Greek allies, and they had this great victory. However, at the same time that that was happening, the Persians also fought a naval battle. And the naval battle was against the Athenians, and the Athenians took out all of the Persian ships, which carried all their supplies. Now, Xerxes has an army in Greece with no supplies. So what does he do? Xerxes turns his armies around, and marches them back to Persia. Later he's going to die, but Persia will never regain the strength that it had underneath Xerxes. But I will say this, Greece never forgot what happened to them. And about 150 years later, a guy in Greece rose to power whose name was Alexander. We've heard him before. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Alexander gathered his armies from the city-states of Greece, and their battle cry was, death to Persia. He finds, we're going to tear them down. What they did to us several centuries ago, we're going to go and we're going to take them out. And when he gets there, he finds that Persia is not as strong as it once was. And so he very quickly conquers it. And we saw this when we were looking at Daniel chapter 8 with the ram and the goat. And after conquering Persia, he conquers the entire region. And we know the story about Alexander. He got done conquering everything, and he sat down and cried because there was nothing left to conquer. But we know what history tells us. Alexander, right after conquering the entire known world, he falls ill and dies at the age of 33. So his kingdom is then divided among four generals. He had no heir. He had no children. So his four generals took over the region and split the kingdom into four. Two of those generals get the largest pieces of land. Uh, there's one that gets the south region around Egypt called Ptolemy. And then there's one that gets uh, Babylon, Syria, all the way to India. It's the biggest one. And his name is Seleucus. Ptolemy is in the south. Seleucus is in the north. And both of them border this tiny little nation called Israel. Now, the Jewish people are back at that time. Cyrus let them go home. So we're talking, they're living, and now they've got this, this empire to the south under Ptolemy, and they've got this empire to the north 
under Seleucus. And over time, these two empires start to have sons and the generations continue. And eventually those sons and their sons begin to rule and then they start to go to war with each other. And there's this ongoing struggle throughout the 3rd century, 2nd century B.C. of these two kingdoms back and forth. Sometimes they're really hard at war. Sometimes they're trying to make peace treaties with each other. History says that one such one in the south, Ptolemy II, wanted to seek after a peace treaty with the north. He goes, I, I don't want to fight. I just want, I want to make things right. So he sends his daughter up to the north to marry the king. The king up there was a guy by the name of Antiochus II. Now, this was common of the day. Send a daughter, send, you know, their the families join together, and, and then, you know, the, the son that you have will now be able to rule both kingdoms. The only problem was the, the northern king, Antiochus, was already married. He's married to this woman named Laodice. Laodice decided, you know what? I don't want to be that wife that gets put aside. So Antiochus divorced her, marries this daughter from the south, and has a child. Well, Laodice <laughs> kills them. This, this ex-wife comes back. Be careful. Don't divorce, guys. This ex-wife comes back, kills Antiochus, kills the new wife, kills their son. And now Laodice takes over and rules as the leader of that northern kingdom. Several generations go by, and there's this struggle back and forth between this kingdom where Syria is and this kingdom where Egypt is. Now listen, uh, most Bible scholars believe that there's a gap between the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings. And the time period between them is about 400 years. And that these events that we're discussing right now in history are during that time period. Right? So these kingdoms are going back and forth. Who's stuck in the middle? Israel. Finally, around 175 B.C., a king comes to power in the north. His name is Antiochus IV. Remember him? He gave himself the title Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God made manifest. Basically what he's saying is that, that he's saying, uh, he gave himself that title. He says, when I walk into a room, I want people to say, God has entered into the room. The Jews actually called him Antiochus Epimemes, which means the madman. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, so he comes to power, and he comes to power through deceitful ways. He poisons the rightful heirs to the throne and he, he poisons all those who are in line and so now he kind of takes over this kingdom of Syria. And when he comes to power the first thing he wants to do is wipe out the Jewish people. He goes, I don't like them. I don't like their worship. I don't want to have anything to do with Jews. So what does he do? He moves in and he shuts down temple sacrifices. He says, you're not doing this anymore. He brings a statue of Zeus into the temple, and he sets it up in the Holy of Holy, the Jews' most holy place. He puts a statue of Zeus in there. He then takes a pig, which was an unclean animal to the Jews, and he literally sacrifices it on the altar in the temple, thereby defiling the temple. At one point, he goes down to the southern kingdom, that Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt, and he says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to fight him. And he goes down to fight them, and there was a rumor that started to spread that he had been killed. 
in battle, and the Jews erupt in a celebration. Antiochus has been killed. However, he came back because he wasn't killed. And when he heard the celebration, sources say he killed upwards to 80,000 men, women, and children. Now, what a great walk through history. That was the story. Everything I told you in that story is historical, verifiable. You can search records. You can go to encyclopedias. You can go online. You can find pretty much everything I have said. That's a basic certain events of history that took place from around 300 B.C. to around 160 B.C. True, real events. There might be people who debate the little details, but the main facts are the same. Now, why did I say all of that? Well, the Bible is silent during the 400 years between the Old and New Testament. God doesn't speak to the children of Israel. And they find themselves in the midst of these two warring kingdoms, and the suffering just continues to happen. And we don't know if they're actually crying out to God during those times, or they're just trying to survive, because the Bible's silent about it. So we have to go to the other sources and find out what's going on in the world, which is why I gave you a history lesson. However, if you've heard or if you've read Daniel chapter 11, you might notice some parallels. I want to show you a few things from this chapter now to show you that, that and, and I'm not going to go through every single verse, but you can, and I encourage you to study this more. My main point today is that God writes the history, God who writes the history of Israel is the same God who writes the history of the world. And he's the God that not only writes history, but he's the God who writes the future. Okay, Daniel chapter 11. Now, all of that, now we're here. Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, who's talking? You have to put it back with chapter 10. When you find out in chapter 10, this is the angel that appears to uh, uh, Daniel. And we looked at him last week, this, this warrior of God. And he says, hey, I was here the first year of Darius. This goes way back. He goes, I was there, and I was strengthening him because Darius had that, that change of heart once Daniel goes through the lion's den, okay? So now, look at verse 2. And now I will show you. So this, the angel actually is the one that speaks this whole chapter. And he's explaining to Daniel what he saw. Okay, now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, let's see who's been paying attention. Who's that king? Xerxes. Yes, I got one or two. Yay. Okay. Xerxes. This is King Xerxes. He rose up against Greece at that battle of Thermopylae. This is a real king who's living four generations after Daniel. Now look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with a great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Who is that? Alexander the Great. A very real person. And his kingdom is divided into four. You can't make this up. It's right here. Now look at verse 6. After some years, and it's talking about these two kings of the north and the south. After some years, they shall make an alliance. And a daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north 
to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. Now that phrase, she shall be given up, is sometimes in Hebrew language used to describe someone as being killed. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like the story I was just telling you about the daughter that marries the king and then the ex-wife kills them all. Now skip all the way down to verse 31. Verse 31. Forces from him shall appear. Now this is talking about some evil king. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. This evil king is going to come. And he's going to end sacrifices. He's going to stop the sacrifices. Then he's going to set up this abomination. What is that talking about? It could be the statue of Zeus set up in the Holy of Holies. It could be the sacrifice of an unclean animal on the altar. We, we don't know. But it seems pretty clear that something horrible is going to happen to the Jewish nation. And by the way, there are a lot more through these chapters. I just wanted to show you how accurate details are. Like, like this lines up pretty much with recorded history. As a matter of fact, <laughs> these details are so accurate that people have debated about whether or not this is prophecy. They're like, maybe this was recorded later. And there are scholars who don't believe the Bible, who would not believe this, uh, this, this is the word of God, and they would say, well, what happens is, is this, these words were written later on. And they were written to kind of pretend to be prophecy, but they weren't really prophecy. And so what do they do? They attack this chapter. And they say, hey, the details, you know, it, it cannot be prophecy because all these little details are so important. And so they claim they're written well after the fact. So basically there are people who say whoever wrote this was specifically trying to deceive us, trying to make it sound prophetic when it really wasn't. And I would say perhaps no chapter gets attacked more than Daniel 11 because it's so accurate. Now, how do we know Daniel wrote? Is there any truth to what they said? Is there any truth to these liberal scholars who say, well, you know, you people believe that Daniel wrote it because it's got Daniel in it, but that doesn't necessarily mean he wrote it. Is there any evidence? I'm so glad you asked. In the 1940s, uh, some archaeological digs found the set of caves near the Dead Sea. You ever heard of these caves before? They found a large collection of scrolls. They found an Isaiah scroll that was massive. Anyway, in these discoveries, they found several copies of Daniel, including these chapters. And doing the dating of the scrolls and the dating of the writing, they dated them back to the 3rd century B.C., now, the events of Daniel 11 go all the way up to 160 B.C. So we're talking, they dated the scroll of Daniel long before it actually happened. And if they were discovered in the Dead Sea, that means they were also, they were copies. They, that Daniel didn't go to the Dead Sea and put them in the caves. So they're probably already being passed around, which puts the original earlier. I don't want to get into the details. So did Daniel write it? Well, certainly, there were things that Daniel knew about Babylon that, that only someone who lived in Babylon would know. I came across this scholar. He doesn't believe the Bible. He's atheist. 
R.H. Pfeiffer, and this is what he said about Daniel. He says, we shall presumably never know how our author of Daniel learned that the new Babylon was the creation of Nebuchadnezzar, as the excavations have proved. And that Belshazzar, mentioned only in Babylonian records in Daniel, was functioning as king when Cyrus took Babylon in 538. Now, this is what this, 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 this scholar is saying. We don't know how the writer of Daniel knew what really happened. I can tell you how the writer of Daniel knew what really happened. Uh, Daniel wrote it. And he was given these prophecies here by God, which is exactly what we saw in Deuteronomy, that he is a true, true prophet. Every single detail of Daniel chapter 11, written by Daniel around 530 B.C., came true. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning, God uses prophecy to declare himself as God and to comfort people who are suffering. Now you say, okay, great. So history happened, and we have this record here, and, and this guy Daniel wrote it long before, so how is that applicable to me? Let me tell you a few things about God. God is the author of world history. He writes history before it happens including the parts that involve suffering look at verse 36 this is daniel chapter 11 verse 36 this is the evil king and the king shall do as he wills he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods he shall prosper now notice till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. What is decreed shall be done. Who is the one decreeing this? God is decreeing this. God is behind the entire story and he's decreeing this shall be done and this shall be done and that shall be done and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. God is the author of history. God is writing it and it tells us that God is fully in control of this world. Did you know that the word but appears in this chapter 14 times? Over and over, someone makes a plan to do something, and then the word but appears, and it, they don't get to do it. Look at verse 6. We already saw it. Look at verse 6 again. After some years, they shall make an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south shall come. They're going to make this alliance, and then it says, but she shall be given up. She's going to be killed. Skip down to verse 9. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Verse 11. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. Verse 12. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. He shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Over and over and over, we see these, these kingdoms and these kings planning to do this and wanting to do that, and then it doesn't happen. And I say, it doesn't happen because God doesn't want it to happen. God is writing history, and God is sovereign over history. He's the author of world history. But I will say, number two, that God sets the limits of suffering and evil. So then you say, okay, wait, if God is writing history, and I know that suffering and evil are in history, and he said, we know that, then it begs the question, how does that work? 
Did God produce the suffering and the evil? I say God sets limits on it. We see this throughout Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of of Babylon, remember what happens for that seven-year period of time? He has to live like an ox. Why does he live like like he's out eating grass and he's all this beast look? Why does he do that? Why? Because God says, enough. You have exalted yourself enough. Now I'm going to humble you. Belshazzar, in Daniel chapter 5, brings the temple items out and he defiles them. He's drinking out of the goblets and the different things. And God says, enough. Tonight, you're going to be judged. Tonight, you're going to lose your kingdom. God sets the limits of suffering and evil. You could go outside the book of Daniel. That God is in control of every detail. Because outside the book of Daniel, you find another guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, this Roman emperor who who decided that one day, you know, I really want to know how many people are in my kingdom. I want to know how many people are there. So I'm going to send out this decree. Everyone, go get a census. Go Go count yourselves. Go back to your hometowns and count yourselves. Because of that, two people travel to Bethlehem just to get counted, right? No, you know what they were doing? They were fulfilling what Micah said, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. God is in control. God controls and uses kings and uses kingdoms to accomplish what he will. So when I read headlines today, I can be really anxious about the world. Who is this Kim Jong-un? He's got his finger on the button, right? Trump says, I got a bigger button. No. Who is this Vladimir Putin? That guy's creepy. I don't don't know who. Even in our country, I I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, now there's this, our own government's at war with itself, and I'm so worried, I just don't know. God, who's the author of history, is the author of the present. He always has been, and he always will be in control. These presidents and kings and kingdoms are like puppets in his hands, and he sets limits on them. Right now, in our home, we have a three-year-old dictator. And I can tell you, nothing is safe from him. It is crazy. I think, thank you for the amen. Nothing is... No cabinet, none of his brother's toys, no electronic device, nothing. And you know, we can live in fear of his reign of terror. (laughs) But we do, we set limits over him. Why? Because he's not in control. Oh, he thinks he is, but he's not. To God, (laughs) world rulers are like toddlers that have been put into a pack and play. Because God's always in control. He's in control over every single thing in the world. Now I know that this begs the question, why then is there suffering? Because I read here in Daniel chapter 11, and I see God telling Daniel, suffering is going to happen. Like Daniel's writing, and the angel's explaining the vision to Daniel, and he's writing it down, and he's talking about this evil king who's going to stop the sacrifice, who's going to defile the temple. And I can see Daniel just getting tore up like, oh, no. Why? God's telling Daniel that suffering's going to happen long before it ever does. 
And so my question is, if God is sovereign and God is in control, then why does he allow this to continue? And here I am in 20, almost 2020. And I wonder, why is there still suffering? I want to finish this morning in our response to this, a few statements. Yes, there is suffering and there is still evil. And our country is growing more and more hostile towards the things of God. And I'm supposed to have hope? And yet I see suffering ahead. Daniel writes all this and it was future for him. And we can look at these words and it was history for us. There are some that do suggest that the final section of Daniel 11 is still futuristic for us. Uh, that we talk about the, the uh, Antichrist, if you will. Uh, they, that, that the Antichrist is going to do very similar things that Antiochus IV did. There could be some truth to that. Uh, the Bible does claim that the times of the end, God is going to judge the world. But until those days actually happen, what do we do? Why is there suffering? I know there's a lot of debates, a lot of questions about why suffering and evil exist. And some things are myster mysterious to us, we just don't know. But there are some things that, that, that I, I really believe, and I really think that they can be a help to us today, of why I think suffering exists in the world today. And number one, I think suffering and evil exists in the world today because God values the cross. This is what I mean, that God values a world where the cross happens. That the cross happens because evil and suffering are brought into this world through sin. And so that when the cross takes place, then we get to glorify God, glorify Jesus Christ as not just the second member of the Trinity. We glorify Jesus Christ because he is our personal savior. He is our redeemer. And forever and ever, we're going to be worshiping and glorifying Jesus Christ as our Savior. You don't believe me? Look at Revelation chapter 5. We actually sang some of these words today. Revelation 5, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. Notice, who was slain? It's not just the Lamb. It's not just the Son of God. It's the Lamb who was slain. Why was he slain? Why was he killed? Because he loves me. And I said, God, God values the cross. And God says, I value the cross. And I want to glorify my son in that way. And I want him to be the redeemer. I want him to be the savior. I want him to be worshipped. Not as just part of the Trinity. Not as just me. But I want him to be worshipped in the unique sense that he saves any single person who believes. And because I want him to be worshipped that way, there has to be a cross. And there has to be a cross because of the cross, suffering and evil will exist in the world. Romans chapter 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That verse makes no sense without a cross. God is showing his love by redeeming us as sinners. If there's no sin in the world, then there's no way to demonstrate that love. Is that an easy answer? No, but I think it's a real answer. Okay, fine. There's got to be evil so that God will glorify himself through the cross. But, but why do Christians still suffer? I mean, I'm a believer. 
and God's redeemed me, and God has made me his, then why do I still have to suffer? Why do I still have to deal with evil? Take a look at Daniel. Look at 11. Look at verse 33. Verse 33. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they shall stumble, they shall receive a little help. Uh, some translations say they shall receive little help, as in no help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, notice, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. You see that so that there? Some of God's people will stumble. And we saw in verse 33, the reason they stumble is by sword or by famine. Basically talking about persecution, suffering is going to happen. So suffering is going to happen so that they will be refined, purified, and made white. So you ask the question, why do God's people suffer? Well, I believe that when we were brought into this union with Christ, we were brought into this union with his suffering. That we serve a Savior who suffered on a cross for our sins. And do you know what it means to be made holy or to be made sanctified? It means to be made to, be, to look more like him. And so we will suffer because that's what it means to look more like Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? He says, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And if you're going to join with me, then you can face it. So is persecution coming for Christians? Yes, because it came for Christ. They came after me, and they're going to continue to come after me by coming after you. And we see this in the disciples later on in Acts chapter 5. Uh, Peter and John uh, get put before the, the, the council, and they're actually beaten. And they're said, stop preaching this Jesus Christ. And they said, we're going to beat you. And they beat them. And this is the result. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And you know what I say? We've become so cushioned and so comforted in America that, that I believe that we need some persecution so that we can stand up for Christ in a, bit, in a deeper way. Those disciples in that moment, they didn't walk away and go, man, they beat us. I guess we're going to stop. They were happy. They were like, we are worthy because we suffered for Jesus. And because through that suffering that we're drawing near. And I would say there's a nearness to God that we cannot experience with life when it's great. What we are called to be as Christians, and this is the most difficult thing to say, is those who would say, Whatever suffering it takes to draw me nearer to God is what I want. I want him more than my comfort. And if suffering is the way I get there, then I'm going to go through it. Did you notice also in verse 35? Refined, pure, may white, and then it says, until the time of the end 
You know what the great promise is about people who have to endure suffering? It's not forever. There's going to be a time when it's done. Suffering will not endure for all eternity. The pain that we experience here is only temporary. The evil that we experience here is but for a moment. The suffering that we experience will not last. There's going to come a time when it's all going to be over. And it's going to end. And so what do we do? We push on. We endure. We take another step in faith. Because I know that one day, the Bible says that God's going to wipe all our tears from our eyes. Sin will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Death will be gone. So where are you this morning? Are you in a time of suffering? If so, simply cling to the cross. Simply cry out to God who is your refuge and your strength. And if you're in a place right now where you're not suffering, you can be assured one day you will. So determine now, what are you going to do when the time comes? Knowing trials are going to come and they're going to make us more like Christ. And I say Daniel chapter 11 is showing me that God is in control. That he writes world history. And he's writing my history. And he's writing my future. And that God is declaring in Daniel chapter 11 about what was coming. And he was helping his people to prepare to go through those persecutions by Antiochus. And what I can do is I can take that and I can say, hey, that I know that God knows what's coming ahead for me. God knows what's coming ahead for our country. God knows what's coming our way. And I serve a God who's greater than whatever comes ahead. I serve a God who promised me so much more. And so I live my life with life of faith, with eyes of faith, knowing what's on the other side. And I hold on. And I trust that God knows what he's doing. And I trust that there are limits to the evil that can happen. And I trust that there's an end. But until then, may I encourage you this morning to be a strong people. A people who holds to the word of God. Who holds to our God in the midst of all the suffering that comes our way. Let's pray. God, this morning, this, this chapter was Lord, filled with statement after statement about what was to come for the nation of Israel and the surrounding countries. Lord, I don't know how the people responded to these words. But I know that every promise, every prophecy you said in, these, in this chapter came true. Every single one of them. Because you're the God who knows. God, today I look back on these words and I, Lord, I thank you for giving me this promise that, that you knew the future back then as much as you know the future today. And you've written these words for us so that I can have hope, so that I can, I can walk with faith, that I can live in a hostile world knowing that there is an end coming. There is a time when, when sin will be put aside, when suffering will be no more. God, for a couple of the ladies in our church, they experienced that today. They experienced that this week. 
that their suffering is no more. Or they know then they're worshiping at your feet today. And, and, and partly we're a little jealous. But Lord, we will press on. We will walk each day by faith. Because you are our God. And you have given us eternal life because of the cross. Lord, thank you so much that you valued us so much that you would let your son die in our place. That you would give us the hope, the faith, the encouragement, the love. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving me. May I live in faith with endurance, knowing that one day I will worship at your feet. It's in your precious holy name we pray. Amen.